Many people uh, every year are going to have an annual physical exam. Now, those are not the kinds of appointments that any of us look forward to at all. Uh, Some of you get nervous as the date of that physical approaches. Perhaps the day arrives, and as you're walking into the doctor's office, your heart begins to beat faster. Well, why? Why is your heart beating fast? Well, because they're going to test and check to see if you have any kind of abnormalities. They're going to run all sorts of tests. And the goal, of course, of a physical exam is that uh, some sort of a disease might be detected early and and might be dealt with. Some sort of a disease, perhaps even a disease that, that could be deadly. And so we do things like schedule annual physical exams. Well, if a physical exam is important, isn't it ultra important that we have a time for a spiritual checkup, if you will? And the first of the year is a good time for us to think about where we've been and where we're headed in the Lord. And so I pray this morning as we open God's Word to Nehemiah 13, my prayer is that the Lord would use these words to help us examine our hearts or to allow the Lord to examine our hearts and perhaps a course correction is due as we, as we go through this checkup. Now, as we journey through the book of Nehemiah, you'll remember that Jerusalem was a terrible mess. Babylon had come as a, as a tool of God's judgment and brought destruction upon the Jews. The city walls were destroyed. The temple had been destroyed. It was a terrible mess. The Babylonians had carried the Jews up into captivity. Well, eventually the Persians overtook the Babylonians and the Persians began to allow the Jews to return to their homelands. And so the temple was rebuilt, but the town of Jerusalem was still in shambles. The walls were not built. This was critical for the city's defense and for its economic well-being, ultimately for its flourishing. Now, Nehemiah was a Jew who served in the Persian uh, government. He served as the cupbearer to the king, which was a prominent and important position. And he heard about the situation that Jerusalem was in. And he began to cry out to God. And you'll remember that uh, with the king's permission, with, with God's call, Nehemiah went back to Jerusalem and they began to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And it was a, a rough process all along the way. There was opposition. There were people who rose up as enemies of the Jews trying to stop this, enemies from without, and then also those who arose from within. By God's good grace, the wall was completed. And the last time we were together and looking at Nehemiah, we saw a great celebration because the walls were built. But not only that, we saw the people gather around the word of God. And in Nehemiah chapter 10, as the people of God, they covenanted together to follow God, to obey God. And so they said to God, what you say we are going to do. We're committed to that. Well, after 12 years... Uh, Nehemiah uh, served as, as the governor of Jerusalem. But after 12 years, he had to return to the king in, in Persia. And we don't know uh, for sure how long this journey took, but we know that from Jerusalem to the capital of Persia, Susa, took around 55 days. So you could say that he was gone close to a third of a year or perhaps longer, we, we can't say. But for a good amount of time, he was gone. And we're going to see that during the time that Nehemiah was gone, all of these promises that the people made Well, many of them, they were broken. And we're going to see that it's a stark warning to us. A warning to us that we too can have the best of intentions. And we can say before God 
God, I'm going to follow you. But if we're not careful, we'll find that our hearts begin to drift away as the people do in Nehemiah 13. Let's look in verse 1. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter, enter the assembly of God. So, so here in verse 1, the, the book of the law, the book of Moses is being read before the people. So they're gathered again around the word of God. And in the reading of, of God's word here, it's clear that an Ammonite or a Moabite shouldn't be a part of the Jewish community. Now why? It's not that God was against people of other nations. It's that they weren't Jews. They weren't a part of the people of God. And they weren't allowed to be a part of the community for that reason. And Deuteronomy 23, verses 3 through 6, expressly prohibit that because of the fact that they had uh, been, uh, uh, they had, had been enemies of the Jews previously. And so God said, never allow them to be a part. Now, we know that if they would convert, they could become a part of the community of God. For example, uh, Ruth was a Moabitess, and, and she was a part of the, the community of God. And Ezra 6.21 seems to indicate the very same thing. So here, the people heard that they weren't supposed to allow Moabites and Ammonites to be a part of the people of God unless they were converted, and they obeyed God's word. You see, if you, if you look in verse 3, they separated from Israel these people. So they read the word here, and they obeyed the word. Now let's go down to verse 4. We're going to see this time that Nehemiah was gone from Jerusalem. Now before this, Eliashib the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine and oil which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For by the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king, and I asked to come to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Now here... In verses 4 through 9, we're seeing a certain compromise that occurs. Remember that God's people were supposed to be distinct. Uh, They weren't supposed to intermarry or intermingle, if you will, with those who were not a part of his people uh, that were not Jews. But here, while Nehemiah was gone uh, to, to to the king of Persia, what happens? The high priest, the leader of the people, spiritually, Elisha, he allows Tobiah an Ammonite by the way, which we just read about, to take up residence in the temple of God. Now, a couple of questions ought to come to our mind. First, why is there some big warehouse-like area in the temple that's empty? It it was to store the grain offering we see here. Why why was it empty? That's the first question that ought to come into our minds with this passage. But also, number two, who is Tobiah? And we know from looking at the rest of the book of Nehemiah that Tobiah was an enemy of the people of God all throughout the rebuilding of the wall. He tried to work to prevent the wall from being rebuilt. Not only that, he came up with a plan to assassinate Nehemiah. But you see, Tobiah was very clever. He had married a prominent person uh, in, in, Jewish, uh, in Jewish life. And not only that, his son had as well. So 
he had a lot of influence, sort of behind the scenes, because you didn't want to make Tobiah mad because, well, he was married to people of power. And so Tobiah, for whatever reason, isn't just given a little corner office in the temple. No, he's given this giant warehouse area that he turns into a sort of loft. He starts living there. Now you've got an enemy of the Jews living right in the heart of Jerusalem. And not only that, you've got an enemy of the Jews desecrating the temple, an area that was meant to be sacred. You've got a Nahanchu living in, a place that was meant for the storage of, of offerings to God. This was a huge problem. And so while Nehemiah was gone, this is what Elisha did. Now, why did Elisha do it? Probably because he felt the pressure of Tobiah's family because of his connections. He felt the pressure. He, he gave in to the pressure. It was just a little compromise, right? It was just a little compromise. And so Tobiah is living in the temple. Nehemiah comes and with a certain anger, a certain righteous anger, much like we saw the Lord Jesus himself had when he cleared the temple. Do you remember when the temple was being desecrated and he cleared out those who were buying and selling and, and making a place that was meant to be sacred and holy, making it something else, something driven for greed. And here with that kind of fervor. Nehemiah says, you're out. You're gone. Get out of here. Now imagine the kind of courage that it took to take that stand that Nehemiah took. And so in Nehemiah 10, verse 29, the people pledged this, to observe and do all the commandments of our Lord and his rules and his statutes. They said, we're going to do everything you said. But here, an Ammonite, a non-Jew, is living in the temple. Hardly faithfulness to the covenant that they made. Now, when we think of cutting back, and it's the first of the year, that's a topic often, isn't it? Well, I'm going to cut back, try to be a little more healthy, going to try to lose a little weight. And so you say, um, well, I'm going to eat just a little bit of this. And you eat a little bit, and then you put that uh, ice cream tub back into the freezer and that little cup was so good. And next thing you know, half of the ice cream tub, it's empty, right? You've done this. Well, I've never done that. but um, No, we've, we've all done that. We know that just a little bit will often take you further and further. And this is what was happening among the people of Israel. They were compromising and they were drifting further and further from God because one compromise always makes another easier and easier, and easier. And, and, and that's, that's what's happening here. Let's look in verse 10. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as their treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Sadik the scribe, and Pedadiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zachar, the son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. So why was this big warehouse-like area empty in the temple? Because the people had quit bringing the grain offerings, because the leaders had not ensured that this happened. And so what, is, what does Nehemiah do? He says, wait, 
We're going we're gonna to start doing what we said we would do. Now, what had they said they would do? Well, in Nehemiah 10.37, the people had vowed to bring in the tithes. And in 10.39, they vowed not to neglect God's house. And yet, that's exactly what they did. They did exactly opposite of what they said. There's a warning there for us. There's something here that ought to catch our attention. And so the people hadn't brought the tithes and the leaders hadn't led the people to do so. And so Nehemiah sets things in order. He says, bring in the the tithes. And so the people bring in the tithes and he sets leaders in place with, with integrity, presumably, to make sure that things go as they should. Now, Malachi was a prophet who prophesied during this time, during the time of Nehemiah. And if you remember Malachi 3.8, what did he say to the people? He says, will a man rob God, but you rob me. But you rob me. And and he said, how? The people said, how do we rob you? And he said, you rob me because you don't bring in the the tithes that, that, that I've called you to bring. Now, it reminds me of my kids. They often like to take something that we already have around the house and wrap it and then give it to me as a gift. And, you know, you open it and you're excited and you think, didn't, didn't I buy that? Or wasn't it my paycheck that paid for that? Yes, it was, but, but they were bringing to me something they thought would bring me joy, even if really I had bought it myself. And that's kind of a picture of what tithing is like. It's kind of a picture of what giving to God is like. Everything we have, truly God gave it. We, we sometimes live under the illusion that it's ours, that, 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 that we own everything, but we don't. Everything that we have is a gift from him. So what's a tithe? It's giving back something that, that really is his in the first place. It's an acknowledgement of your gratitude for, for, for what he's done for you. It's a willingness to obey in an area as critical as money. And, and so that's what we see in Nehemiah here, a willingness to say, I'm going to give. I'm going to give what you've called me to give. In verse 15, Nehemiah says, In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath? And in the verses that, that follow, Nehemiah begins to set things in place to, to make the Sabbath right. In verse 22, he says, Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Well, what was the Sabbath? It was Saturday, and the Jews were called not to work on the Sabbath. They were called to, to observe a day of rest and also a day of worship of, of God, a day to, to think of God and to honor God. And in chapter 10, when they made this covenant before God, in verse 31, they said this, and if the people of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And what are they doing? Exactly what they said they wouldn't do. Brothers and sisters, this needs to catch our attention because they meant to do right, but then they landed up here There's a warning there. There's a warning for us. And so we see that the the people are doing business on the Sabbath. They're they're buying and selling, doing exactly what they told God they wouldn't do. Well, what about the Sabbath today? 
In the New Testament, there's no direct command to observe the Sabbath, to take a Saturday off where you don't do anything or where you gather for worship. But what there is in the New Testament is an expectation that believers gather together for worship on a weekly or a regular basis. So how do we observe the Sabbath? Well, one of the ways is by gathering together for worship. Also, a way that we observe, observe the Sabbath today is, is to take a day for rest, to acknowledge that we're not God, that, that we need rest. He may, he may control the whole universe, and he does, and he can do anything he wants once, but we're finite, we're limited, and, and taking time for rest is an acknowledgement of our, our need and an acknowledgement of our understanding to, to obey him. So, so that's how we live out the Sabbath today, but in that day, they had taken a day that was meant to be holy for God, and they had made a complete joke of it. Now, I want you to imagine that you had spent months and months and months and months planning your wedding ceremony. Men, your part was to say, yes, that's a good idea, Right? And so he worked on planning this wedding. Um, the day came. Everybody's dressed so great. Everything's going so well. And then someone walks into the ceremony and they begin to blow air horns in the midst of your wedding. Wouldn't it infuriate you? Why? Because it would be complete disregard for what was happening. And these Israelites were showing complete disregard for what God had called them to. They were neglecting good times of worship. They weren't observing rest. They were just making it a day of commerce, a day to make more money. This was, an, uh, this was a part of their greed being lived out. And so the people had meant to do good, but they weren't doing good. Let's go to verse 23. In those days, also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Amnon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair, and I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. So what's happening here? The people are intermarrying. It's not that... There's a problem with marrying someone from this nation. The problem is, or that nation, the problem is that a Jew could only marry a Jew. Why? Because the people of God were supposed to stay pure. The New Testament principle is this, that if you're a believer, you can only marry a, a strong believer. 2 Corinthians 6.14 makes that clear among several other scriptures. So the same principle is implied. It's, it doesn't matter what country a person, person is from or what race or ethnicity a person is. Ultimately, the question is, is this person a part of the people of God, or are they not? And they were marrying people who were not a part of the people of God, a people who were not worshipers of God. And incidentally, Nehemiah says, you know what's happening? Your kids can't even speak the language of Judah. This is the language of Hebrew. They're speaking foreign languages. Now, why did this matter? Because the word of God was written in Hebrew, and they were just a generation away or so of losing the ability to access God's word. Now, this is critical because the decisions that they were making at this point had long-term consequences in the generations to come. And Nehemiah points that out. Parents, I want you to see something. The decisions that you're making now are going to have long-term consequences in the lives of your children. Now, it's not that if you do everything right that your kids are automatically going to be committed to the... There's no promise like that in Scripture. But we know that if you live for the Lord and you strive to honor him and love him, there's a much better chance that your kids are going to walk with him. Now, parents, think about your lives. What is it teaching your kids about God? 
What is it teaching your kids about a dedication to Christ, about a commitment to the church? What does your life teach? Because it will be rare for your kids to suddenly have a huge change of heart. If they've not been close to Jesus and not been committed to church and things like that for for years and years and years, it's going to be odd for them as adults to suddenly have a change of heart. No, it's very important, parents, that you recognize the responsibility that you have to pass on the faith in Nehemiah. Hits that right here. You're marrying these ladies who are not committed to God. And then he uses the example of Solomon. We won't, won't read all of the scripture. But he says, consider Solomon, this great and wonderful king. And what does he do? He begins to marry these women who are not committed to God. And suddenly he found himself wandering away from God in a terrible mess. And so Nehemiah says, don't you see the path that you're taking is a path of destruction it's a path of harm now notice nehemiah's response here is pretty pretty rough he beats some of them it could be that that when he confronted them about what they had done that they they picked a fight with them we really don't know it could be that as a as a persian official he was exercising his prerogative as a government authority and, and punishing them by pulling out their hair. That was a way of, of saying, this is shameful. What you are doing and what you have done is a matter of shame. He doesn't require that they divorce, but he does say to them, make an oath that from this point on, you're only going to marry people who worship God, who are committed to God. We see in verse 28 that this inner, inner marrying, that is marrying people who were not a part of the family of God, had even infected the family of the high priest. Elisha's grandson, in verse 28, we see, had married a foreign uh, woman, a woman who was not a worshiper of God. Why was this important? Well, because as a part of the high priest's family, at some point, Elisha's grandson could have become the high priest. So, so here, uh, uh, and, and you see in Leviticus 21, 14, a prohibition against that very thing. So what do we see all throughout chapter 13? we see that the promises they made in chapter 10 are all being broken just some years later. And it emphasizes the importance of persistently pursuing God, of persistently pursuing Him. You see, these broken promises remind us, as the hymn says, that our hearts are prone to wonder, that our hearts are, are prone to wander, even with the best of intentions, brothers and sisters, our hearts often begin to drift from the Lord. Imagine uh, on, a, on a day that, that you're out fishing and you've got that floating, you've got a, a float. You cast that minnow or that worm or whatever you're fishing with, grasshopper out there, and you've got that float on the water and it's just a little bit of wind. It doesn't take long before that float has drifted toward the shore or away from where you cast it. And that's what happens spiritually if we're not very careful, if we're not intentional. We plan to be here, but then we land over here. It wasn't on purpose. It just sort of happens that way. You see, we cannot put it on cruise control spiritually, brothers and sisters. We cannot do that. And so this morning, I want to give us five questions, five questions to consider as this new year begins, each of them being an outworking of this text that we've looked at. First, do you persistently take in God's word? Do you persistently take in God's word? In verse 1, we saw the people gathered around the reading of the word of God. Do you do daily Bible study? Is there a time where you get alone with God each day and you read the word? 
Maybe, maybe you need to get up a few minutes earlier, 15, 20 minutes earlier, and spend time with the Lord then. Maybe you should take some time on your lunch break, and that would be a good time for you. Or right after you get home for work. I don't know what your schedule is like, but I urge you every single day to spend some good time reading God's Word. Have a, have a systematic plan. I've, out in the foyer, I've, I've given you some plans to read through the Bible in a year, to read through the Bible in two years, and a plan that helps you read through the highlights of the Bible in a year. If you don't have a plan for, for reading Scripture, grab one of those and start reading. Uh, this is the situation. Get in the book, and the book will get into you. It will begin to remake you and, and shape you. So how do we take in God's Word? We read it daily. We gather together for corporate worship to hear the word read and preached as as we're doing today and as we see the people doing in verse 1 of of Nehemiah 13. Without the word, your faith will wither. Without the word, your faith will wither. Get in the word and your faith is going to grow. It's going to grow. Second, do you persistently pursue a life of holiness? Do you persistently pursue a life of holiness? Are you careful with your words? Do you strive to be pure in the words that you use Teenagers, are you tempted to talk like all the other people that you're around? They're using profanity and telling dirty jokes, and it's just so easy to, do, to, to say the same thing and, and to, to be like them. I'm saying to you, if you would follow God, use pure words. Or what about someone comes to you and says, hey, have you heard about this? Let me tell you what she did. Let me tell you about what he did. And, and we begin to, to do this ungodly kind of conversation, ungodly kinds of words. Brothers and sisters, God means for us to walk a life of holiness. We see it underscored here. They just kept drifting away. Kept drifting away. So our words ought to be holy. What about behavior? We should be pure in behavior. As we consider this passage particularly, I would say to those of you who are singles, who are interested in a relationship, you ought to only pursue a person who's a solid, growing Christian. Not someone that you're planning to, to do a, a remodel on, okay? It will not work. You need to, you need to pick a, a, a person who loves Jesus and it's clear need to be committed to, to purity in relationships. Christians, if you, if you know Jesus and, and you're, you're not married, you, you need to remain pure. You don't move in together and start doing house together. No, you, you do what the Word says. You walk in purity. You, you strive to honor God. We, we know that intimacy is meant to be between a man and a woman in, in marriage only. And so, so we strive to live a pure life. And we strive to be pure not just in our words and our behavior, but also in our thoughts. We need to be careful about how we think about others. Sometimes we're tempted, someone who's hurt us or someone who's done us wrong, to just seethe in our minds. And we begin to think over and over how she did that or he did that and how I'd like this to happen to them. Oh, I wish this would happen. And we begin to let this bitterness grow in our hearts. It cannot be that way among the people of God. Careful what you look at. You need to be careful what you look at. If you want a heart that's pure, you can't be looking at filth all the time. And now it's so accessible. It's in the palm of your hand all the time, access to, to stuff that's, that's filthy and awful. Brothers and sisters, we must walk in purity. We, we can't go that path. We need to be careful to be content and not jealous. I'm just giving you examples, but we could list countless things here. But, but some... We, we see what this person has or what that person has or the situation. Man, they, they really got a better opportunity than I did or look at what he got. or what, And we begin to be jealous about all of that. Oh, we need to be content with what God's given us. We, we don't need to live there. We need our thoughts to be pure. Now, some things in life just happen, don't they? 
Like you wash your car and it rains. You don't plan that. It just happens. Um, trouble with your printer. You've got something you're trying to get done. You've got a deadline. You're trying to print. You're in a rush. And then the printer won't print. It just happens. Not really something you set up, you know. Um, you're in a hurry to get the kids to school, to get to work. And then car battery. Well, it's dead. That kind of thing just happens. And I want you to understand, brothers and sisters, spiritually, drift just happens. It just happens. We don't have to work to drift spiritually away from God. It it just happens. But what are the kind of things that don't just happen? Well, there are a lot of those. A nicely prepared dinner, that doesn't just happen, does it? A clean kitchen doesn't just happen. Uh, well-manicured lawn with uh, shrubs trimmed and yard mowed, all of that doesn't just happen. No, it takes effort and energy. And I want you to know that holiness and being close to God doesn't just happen. You have to be intentional. You have to pursue a closeness with God. Now, it's not that in our own strength somehow we can say, you know what, I'm going to be more holy this year and we're going to go and be more. That can't work. What happens is we say, I want to know Jesus more and I want to love him more. And I begin to read the word and pray. And God in his grace begins to give me the strength to walk a holy life. And he begins to change my desire so that now I don't want all this garbage. I just want him. And I begin to change. I begin slowly but surely to get back where I need to be. But that's an intentional choice. You don't just read the Bible automatically. You don't just gather together with other believers in church automatically. You have to plan that. You have to work at that. You have to put effort and energy into that. So holiness requires intentionality, not indifference. It requires intentionality, not indifference. Well, why holiness? Why does holiness matter? Why did it matter among the people of God then? And why does it matter today? Why? Because holiness is the way to know Jesus more. It's the way you know Jesus more. Think of a pail filled with fool's gold and a pail filled with real gold. Which one do you want? You want the fool's gold or the real gold? We know what you want. You want the real gold. There's a lot of value there. Or suppose you could have a spouse who loved you and was committed to you and you had a great relationship with. Or you could have a relationship with someone online that you've never met before. Well, what would you choose? Well, clearly you're going to choose a close relationship with a spouse that you could know and and treasure and, and be a blessing to you. You see, when we really want to know Jesus, then sin, it'll be fool's gold to us. We don't want it. We we don't want it. Why would we take fool's gold when we can have the real thing? Why would I take an online relationship with a person I've never met when I could have a close relationship with my spouse? Why would I take the foolishness of so many sin when I could instead have the intimacy of being close to Jesus? That's gold. That's gold. You see, a key to knowing Jesus is not being satisfied with the counterfeits. It's not being satisfied with the counterfeits. And not being satisfied with the counterfeits means a life of holiness. Third, do you persistently honor God with your money? Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says you cannot serve both God and money. Either you will hate the one and love the other or be devoted to to the one and despise the other. You you can't do both. And so our money is kind of like a blood test, how we use our money. It's kind of like a blood test, a spiritual blood. It helps us see where we're at. It helps us know if we really love God or, or if it's just a bunch of talk. You know, I've heard many a time that 
what you do is what you believe, and all the rest is just talk, and, and I believe that. And so your money tells something about you. It tells something about what controls your heart. You see, your money is a way to say to God, I'm trusting you and I love you. So do you need to begin to give? Do you, do you need to begin to give more generously? You see, when, when you give to God, ministries are furthered and the gospel's taken to the world and people who have needs are, are helped. And those are good things. Those are things that, that God calls us to. Fourth, do you persistently confront compromise? Do you persistently confront compromise? What do you see in Nehemiah? He's not tolerating one ounce of compromise. He, he's not going to. He, he deals with compromise. So are you willing to stand for what's right? Or do you give in to sort of a weak need passivity? When the going gets tough, you kind of you start backing up. You kind of start blending in. You, you don't want to take a stand. You don't want to get yourself into any kind of trouble. You're going to take, well, the easy route. You know, take the, the easy way. You've got to be willing to stand if you should. And in your own life, in your own faith, recognize, brothers and sisters, the world is going to push you uh, uh, to go along. The world's going to push you to ignore what God's Word says. Ah, oh, talk like everybody else. Do what everybody else does. You're not going to let a bunch of dead guys who lived two or 3,000 years ago tell you how to live today, are you? And the world constantly pushes you away from God. It's the drift. It's the drift. You see, the sirens of the world are luring our hearts. Look at how flashy this is. Look at how good this is. Calling you to compromise your faith. But don't do it. Don't do it. Confront compromise. Don't allow your heart to drift away from Christ. Fifth, do you persistently draw near to God in prayer? Do you persistently draw near to God in prayer? Do you have a good time each day where you read the word uh, and, and spend time in prayer? M- maybe when you do your Bible study time, you could also do your prayer time. But every day you ought to have a good section of time where you call out to God in prayer. And then throughout the day as well, like we see Nehemiah doing here, we ought to be calling out to him all throughout the day. God, help me when I meet with this person to say the right things and not to say the wrong things or help me as I deal with this person who really is tough for me to deal with. God, help me to have the right spirit with them. All throughout the day, we're praying those kinds of prayers to walk with him, to be close to him. So you go in, as we mentioned at the beginning, for that annual exam and the next morning, the nurse calls you and tells you that you need to come in this afternoon. The doctor wants to talk to you. It's got to be serious. Calling the very next day. There must have been something in those blood tests. Something really serious. I want you to know spiritually in your life today, is there something really serious that needs to be dealt with? Something that's really of huge importance? It's time for a checkup. I don't know what's going on in your heart. I I can't see your heart, but I know one who can see your heart. I know one who can do a blood test. He gave his own son. His own son shed his blood for you. And it matters to him what's going on inside of your heart. For most of us, there are some pressing issues that need to be addressed. So let's meet with God at this moment. 
Ask him to search your heart, to reveal the areas in your lives where, where change is needed, where you've drifted, where you've moved away from him. For some of you, this situation is literally urgent. You're making decisions right now that could, that could bring great harm in your own life and in the lives of those you love. Some of you are right on the edge. And for every one of us, the situation is critical. If it's not urgent, it's at least critical. Because every one of us are just a few decisions away from drifting, drifting from the Lord, just like these folks were here. We must persistently pursue God. So believers, what has you distracted? What is it that, that's gotten your attention? What has you drifting from God? What's your excuse or your reason for chasing after something else? Well, I, I would be that or I would do that, but I got this going on. What's your excuse? Let, let's allow the Lord to search those excuses. Let's ask him to search her heart. And I'm pleading with you, come home to him today. Let him do that checkup. And then whatever change he's calling you to make, by his grace, seek to do it. He'll help you. You're not, you're not trying to just grit your teeth and be what you're supposed to be. No, you're drawing close to him and enabling him to give you the strength to, to be what he wants you to be. Now, some of you this morning, you don't need a heart checkup. Not at all. What you need is a heart transplant. You need a brand new heart. In fact, in the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah promised that one day God would, would take away the heart of stone and he would give a heart of flesh. And what that was a prophesy, that was a prophecy about the time that he would send Jesus. And I want you to know today, if you're not a believer, if you know about Jesus, but you don't know Jesus, he came to give you a brand new heart. You see, Jesus came and he walked this earth. He, he lived a perfect life. He was nailed to a cross and he suffered and died for our sins, for, for your sin. And he was buried and he was raised to life. And if we believe in him and call out to him in faith, the Bible tells us that he'll save us, that he'll rip out our old sinful heart and he'll give us a brand new heart, one that longs to please him and to honor him. So if that's you today, I plead with you not to leave here until you've got a new heart. Right here, the first day of the new year, 2017. What an incredible opportunity. If you've never trusted Jesus, hey, I'll be up here in just a moment. I'd love to visit with you. I'll be around after the service as well. No more critical decision. Join me in prayer.